There isn't probably an observer of the scene today that doesn't recognize that Saudi Arabia has done a very deft two-faced game. They come here, they send us a moderate face, they've convinced obviously our State Department who walks along almost in lockstep with everything that they say. We here in Congress should say we understand that we're going to start judging nations in the post-September 11th world by what they do, not by what they say. And what the Saudi Arabians have done is export Wahhabism to the United States, export terrorism to the troops in Iraq, and export terror all around the world. Vote yes on the Wiener-Ferguson Amendment. Let's finally put an end to it. This is The Middle with Anthony Wiener. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 52 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. The challenge of being on radio and a podcast in this case today is trying to figure out how to be of service, stating unambiguous first principles about the savagery of Hamas terrorism, the right of Israel to protect herself and to recover its hostages, and the correct placement of culpability for allowing this and even encouraging it all to happen. And how, how I have kind of come down on this and how to use the platform in the last week plus. I've been trying to sort that out. So I tried in last week's episode to offer kind of a condensed version of how we got here. The past weekend on the middle, on the radio, on Saturday, I looked at the responses of our leaders in government and the many people who, thank God, don't lead anything. And for the most part, the shock jock ethos of radio does not lend itself well to the complicated world of international relations. And we're going to get to that and Ask Anthony. In spite of what you may have heard, the answer to everything isn't always Biden bad. As I explained this weekend, even many Republicans and their organs in media, realize that message, while simple and comforting like a security blanket, doesn't really fit this moment. And a mea culpa here. I did a bit of this too. In response to the Biden bad take, I did take the bait and did a bit of the, oh yeah, well, listen to me tell you about how Trump is worse. I probably shouldn't have done that either. Anyway, after the who did this came the who do we blame? That next wave of analysis has settled on Iran. So today I'd like to spend some time looking at Iran, but also at the other nations in the region and around the world that have created both the resources and the permission structure for Hamas to do its terror that it inflicted both on Israel in this case and also, if we're to be honest, on the Palestinians. Let's begin with this. Committing terror against Israel in the name of the Palestinians, it's popular on the Arab street and thus with the governments of the Arab world. Hamas does not exist in spite of the best efforts of governments like Oman, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and yes, Iran. They exist because of them. Turkey, for example, a NATO member, not only does not consider Hamas a terrorist organization, they permit Hamas to have offices in their country. And the leader of Hamas meeting with President Erdogan is not uncommon. But as with other players in the region, Turkey has been trying to play a lot of sides at once. Turkey has always been warmly considered by supporters of Israel because of its recognition of Israel in 1949. But it has been a rocky relationship. In recent decades, it hit a low point in 2010 when Turkish citizens were among those who tried to break the Israeli blockade of Gaza and were killed by the Israeli Navy. The geography, as I explained last week, is that Gaza is bordered on one side by the Mediterranean Sea. 
In addition to controlling what and who gets into Israel proper via land borders, the Israeli and Egyptian Navy also patrol the waters to make sure that arms don't come in via ship. Relations between Turkey and Israel have improved much since, the, since that incident, but a lot, of their, uh, a lot of things have been bumpy. But today, Turkey continues to allow Hamas members to live, meet, raise money in Turkey, despite having um, better relations, Turkey that is, with Israel. In the past, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has tried to make a play to be the role of regional peacekeeper. But when given the chance to push back on groups like Hamas, he never has. And this week has been no different. Another country that has said things about being helpful against terrorism is Saudi Arabia. As the keeper of the Muslim flame and the home to the two principal Muslim holy sites, Mecca and Medina, they are the most influential and wealthy of the Sunni nations. They have had it up and down relationship with Hamas. They were aligned with Fatah, they being the Saudis, were aligned with Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian opponents of Hamas. And it even arrested, the Saudis had, some of the Hamas leaders. But part of their strategy has been to export and pay for terrorism elsewhere so that they themselves, the Saudis, would not become targets. So the textbooks that deny Israel exists and advocate for killing the Jews, funded by Saudi Arabia. The Wahhabi extremist brand of Islam that has been exported around the world, paid for and exported by the Saudi kingdom. And let's not forget that bin Laden and al-Qaeda was started with a nice payment of about $1 billion to take his fundamentalist hate and direct it outside of Saudi Arabia. He did not make his money investing in Microsoft stock. Their strategy has been to foment, pay for, and export terror as a form of self-defense and as a way to deflect from its own bad behavior. Which brings us back to Hamas and Israel. In April, Hamas went hat in hand to visit with the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia to improve their relations with the Saudi kingdom and to ask for money. At about the same time, the Saudis were starting to take baby steps towards recognizing Israel. They weren't that close, and their demands for things like making the United States do things that they would never agree to. They wanted NATO-style security um, agreements um, that if they were, Saudi Arabia were ever attacked, the U.S. would defend them, which is something we would never do with a repressive monarchy. So at the same time as they were offering to help Hamas, and they even released one of their Hamas prisoners, they were playing footsie with the Israelis and the Americans. And now, now that that attack has happened, that seems to have been months in the planning, the Saudis have laid the blame so securely at the foot of Israel and stiffed our country when we asked them to help for support. For example, when Anthony Blinken went to Riyadh as part of his shuttle diplomacy recently, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam finally showed up for an evening meeting the following morning as a nice FU to our country. But they play many angles at once. They've paid off Donald Trump in the form of golf fees and his son-in-law got over $2 billion to invest in his fund. And although the Saudis were rivals of the Shias of Iran, they have been screwing America and helping the Iranian cause by slashing their oil exports as they do what they always do, try to make gas prices and oil prices as high as they can. There is an explanation that Hamas may have been rebuffed by, by the kingdom in their April meetings, and they saw this growing detente between Israel and the Saudis and realized that their benefactors were in their eyes burning their, turning their backs on Hamas and burning the bridge to Hamas. 
So Hamas committed this attack as a way of sabotaging the Saudi-Israeli process. That is a plausible explanation. But there is the Arab state and probably the one that would do the most to help the Palestinians because they border on the Gaza Strip and they once claimed the Gaza as their own and that's the nation of Egypt. But for Egypt also, this is complicated. Hamas was created as a wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. Broadly speaking, Turkey and Egypt can't stand Hamas for the same reasons. They not only um, go out of their way uh, because Gaza is not on the Sea of Israel, or Gaza is on the border of Israel, but though anytime that Israel, that Israel puts pressure on the people of Gaza, the only way out is through Egypt. While much is made of the Gaza being an open-air prison for two million or so residents there, the gatekeepers are both Israel and the Muslim nation of Egypt. The smuggling of weapons comes into Gaza via tunnels from Egypt, despite the efforts of Egyptians. So why does Egypt take this posture of being so anti-Hamas? Well, for one thing, there is the long history of the so-called moderates in Egypt that have, um, uh, that have been assassinated and otherwise harassed by the fundamentalists of the Muslim Brotherhood, which are associated with Hamas. So they have little sympathy for Hamas and saw the routing of the Palestinian Authority and their Fatah party as a threat to Egypt. Also, Egypt had a peace deal with Israel since 1978 when Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begum of Israel signed the Camp David Accords. Because of that agreement, we, you and me, provide U.S. aid, both into Israel and to Egypt. And the agreement is an example of the good things that happen in the Arab world if you make peace with Israel. But a couple of interesting things about the Camp David Accords that are worth noting in today's context. One, uh, one is that Menachem Begin was the first Likud prime minister. He founded the party then and ran as a hawk that would be tougher on the Arabs. A good reminder that making peace has been a bipartisan effort in Israel. It was Arik Sharon, sometimes called the bulldozer, that took the step of leaving Gaza. He too got elected on a platform of not giving an inch. So when you look at what Bibi Netanyahu might do, don't be fooled by his party label. Another notable thing about Camp David Accords is that Anwar Sadat got assassinated by fundamentalists. Doing peace is a not, uh, not a good survival technique in the Arab world. So I'm going to do an episode next week on all the different turns and twists about the peace process since Camp David. But what can Egypt do now? What role can they play? For one thing, they may be willing to be a pressure valve release for Gazans to get out of the way while Israel purges the place of Hamas and its arms. When Israel announced recently it was going to begin operations in the north of the Gaza Strip, it was part of their long-standing policy of giving civilians fair notice of impending danger. But it also made for an impossible logistical problem. Leave the north and go where? The two answers are in the south, the most densely populated part of the Strip could just move to the north. Um, uh, the north, rather, could just move to the south, to the Rafah Gate and into Egypt. Could Egypt set up some sort of emergency refugee camp? They could, but are probably loath to do so for the reason they haven't been willing to take back Gaza from Israel in the first place. They don't want the headache of taking care of the people of that land, even for a short while. It's worth pointing this out. Gaza is a hotbed of Muslim fundamentalists who were turned out of Egypt, who are living among a lot of citizens of Gaza 
who should, by all rights, be citizens of Egypt. Yet the whole world seems to think that Israel created this problem. They didn't, but they are stuck with it. And so that brings us to the country that everyone is looking at for the simplest explanation of who's the bad guy, who is writing the checks to Hamas, Iran. Like the Saudis, they're bad players. But unlike the Saudis, they make no secret of their support for Hamas and even more directly Hezbollah in the north, which operates within the fragile nation of Lebanon. For everything that the Saudis, Egyptians, and Turks have done to try to be two-faced in dealings with Israel and the West, Iran has shown only the face of troublemaker. Tehran is less than 1,000 miles from Tel Aviv. And as a fundamentalist Shia government, they extend their influence by having proxy armies to cause problems for their enemies, Israel chief among them. The argument that Iran would be loser if Saudis joined the UAE, who signed the Abraham Accords, and the state of Israel in 2020 and getting closer, yes, Iran would be a loser. Would Iran be happy with the timing of the Hamas attack? In as much as it jams up the Saudis, yeah, they probably would have been. But there are reasons to be suspicious in this rush to blame Iran. First is the way this came just after the money that was owed by South Korea for an oil sale in 2017 was finally released as part of a deal to release five American hostages. The Fox News talking point is Joe Biden gave the Iranians money to fund Hamas, and here we are. That doesn't really add up. First, the money hasn't even been released yet, and the Biden administration, by the way, has announced they're holding it up. But also, a ton of intelligence has been gathered, sadly too late, that this operation by Hamas had been in the works for months. Both Biden and Israeli officials have been very quiet about Iran in the last week or so. And Biden was asked on 60 Minutes just the other day, and he said he saw no evidence yet that Iran was involved in the planning. Funding? Yes. But Iran provides a steady flow of funds uh, the way the Saudis have. But in the case of Iran, they've been struggling a little bit economically since the sanctions were reimposed by the United States under Donald Trump in 2018. In the last few months, higher oil prices, ironically caused by the Saudi cutbacks, have helped Iran despite the sanctions. They have been skilled at, the Iranians have, at circumventing sanctions by shipping oil to places like Malaysia, who then get it to China, who's a big market, obviously. So would Iran, who just had this breakthrough with the United States that allowed them to get repaid for old oil purchases, would they pick this moment to coordinate a Hamas attack that would trigger even more sanctions? I mean, like right now, maybe but I think the more likely scenario is Hamas was acting with support it had banked for years and not with coordination with Iran. One other tell that maybe Iran was not in on the planning, Hezbollah wasn't involved. And they, well, they may be soon, but they, it does feel like they'd be missing an opportunity not to attack from the north while Israel has their hands uh, full in Gaza. But that would surely have been a Hezbollah party if Iran were pulling the strings here, and it hasn't been so far. But like I said, by the time you hear this, we might learn otherwise. But we're here about the famous Iran nuclear deal. When the Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2015, it was intended to help with a singular problem. Iran was developing nuclear weapons, and they were getting close. Israel had some success in the past, like in the 80s, bombing above-ground facilities, so this generation of Iranian leaders had moved its labs, power plant, and development deep underground where bombs could not reach them. Barack Obama made the deal, 
to loosen some of the sanctions if Iranians gave up on their development of nuclear weapons and agreed to let the world do inspections and make sure that they did. By the way, the only reason the Iranians had agreed to this was the effectiveness of the sanctions. After decades of the U.S. unilaterally trying to punish Iran, but seeing Iran just take their business to Russia or China, one Hillary Clinton came to town and got the Russians and Chinese to actually agree to join the sanctions regime. Because of her success, finally, Iran was isolated. The Iran nuclear deal was doing its job, but its job was very narrow. Iran gave up its nuclear weapons program. Virtually everyone agreed. Even Donald Trump's State Department and Energy Department agreed. The problem is that while the deal kept nukes out of the hands of the the mullahs in Tehran, it did not stop Iran from exporting terrorism in all kinds of other ways, nor, for that matter, oppressing its own people. Despite the fact that the deal was working as created, Donald Trump withdrew from the deal, and I'm not sure he did the wrong thing. But the effect was to turn the Chinese, who had gone along with the Hillary sanctions, was to kind of burn them. Nowadays, they seem more than happy to buy Iranian oil and undermine the sanctions, albeit, as I said, via third parties. So now Iran has weaker international sanctions, ours are still in place, and the ability to return to building its nuclear weapons. Are we better off? I don't know. The last country that might be troublemaking here is Russia. Israel has been walking a line. They have been tacitly supporting Ukraine by doing things like accepting Ukrainian refugees. But they have been very public about not opposing Russia with weapons. In this very dangerous neighborhood is Syria to the north, separated from Israel by a UN buffer zone in the Golan Heights. And Syria is a Russian client state. Israel coordinates with Russia when they, the Israelis, have to conduct airstrikes in Lebanon against Hezbollah positions. Now, I say coordinate, but I don't mean in the sense that they work together. Far from it. Russia, Iran, and Syria work together to help Hezbollah. But they coordinate in that they make sure that there are no high-stakes misunderstandings when Israel is flying around and doing their thing. But it could be that Russia might have been working with Iran and Hamas to help attack an ally of the United States. Could that be? Could they see the wisdom of giving the U.S. something else to worry about and maybe get us to take our eyes off the ball of the Russia war against our ally in Ukraine? That is another theory that checks a few boxes. It explains the timing, and it also may offer another source of intelligence that might have helped Hamas carry out the attack. So like the Agatha Christie Christie novel, Murder on the Orient Express, there may have been a little bit of everyone did it when you look at this region. Lots of countries had motive, lots had a history, lots had the means. So maybe more than any one nation state that did the attack, they all helped with the so-called non-state actor terrorist group launch this paradigm-shifting attack. But learning lessons of 9-11, beware looking for the pat answer when deciding what the United States should do next. That, however, is the subject of Ask Anthony Anything when we get back. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. 
Bruno. He's your numero uno. So welcome back to Ask Anthony Anything. This week, we deal with a question that is comes up, frankly, a little bit on conservative radio, comes up from time to time in the calls that I've been getting on my radio show on the weekends. But in this case, is put fairly squarely by Sid Rosenberg, who hosts the great show, uh, Sid and Friends in the Morning, which is on every weekday from six to nine. And he poses the question that a lot of, I guess, foes of Joe Biden have been putting. Listen to what he had to say recently while he was interviewing uh, someone from Israel. I have to tell you, I saw, and my heart goes out to this poor woman, Rachel Goldberg, again on TV on Sunday morning. And uh, her son, Hirsch, uh, they believe was abducted at that music festival. His arm was blown off. And they believe he's one of the nearly 200 hostages. And she made it her business on Fox News, by the way, Alex, to thank this administration for being so supportive about five times. And I keep saying the same thing. Being supportive is easy. It's easy to say we love you. We're sorry we're with you. The hard part is, what are you going to do about it? And everything Biden and this administration says to me Telling Israel to kind of calm down, that doesn't work for me. Do the majority of Israelis feel the same way? So that's kind of the Biden bad take. And, you know, to kind of say, you know, I like what he's doing, but I want him to stop saying cool it to Israel. What does he say? Easy to say, we love you. Um, but telling Israel to calm down doesn't work for me. Well, frankly, that isn't what Joe Biden or the administration has been saying. Quite the opposite. They've been doing you know, over the top almost, uh, creating unambiguous support for Israel. In fact, Washington Post recently got a hold of a memo that went out to State Department officials where it warned them not to use certain phrases. It says, warned U.S. diplomats, don't use some phrases. One of them was de-escalation and ceasefire. Don't use that phrase. Don't use the phrase end to violence or bloodshed. Don't use the phrase restoring calm. This went out to the uh, to the State Department officials, the diplomats. So not only has Biden been unambiguous, but so has Anthony Blinken, so has people within the State Department. But there are two other things in terms of what should the United States be doing. One is we may need to be called upon to provide aid, weapons. Uh, you just saw yesterday uh, the battle continues for who's going to be the Speaker of the House. Um, one of the reasons we need to get a speaker is we in the in the taxpayers might be called upon to provide more aid to Israel in the form of weapons or continue to provide aid in form of intel. But the third thing, and this might have been what Sid was alluding to, the idea that we do have a diplomatic mission here to try to act like a superpower, the superpower that goes around, visits other countries and says, hey, help us help Israel here. In the case of the Middle East, it means Anthony Blinken going to places like Saudi Arabia that I described earlier, to Turkey that I described earlier, and say, listen, we need your help here. And even back channels to places like Iran saying, you better mind your P's and Q's because the United States is not messing around. And part of that is saying things about the idea that, as I have said previously, even the most hawkish foe of, the, of Hamas would say, look, there are people in the Palestinian territories, there are in Gaza, there are in the West Bank who don't support the policies of Hamas and Hezbollah and the others. And there are children who are complete innocent victims because no child um, should be subjected to violence and war and bloodshed. But the order is Israel has to do its business and has to uproot Hamas. But to 
hold it against State Department officials or even the President of the United States saying things like he said on 60 Minutes this weekend, saying he thinks it's a bad idea for Israel to be occupying Gaza again. He's not the only one that thinks that. So I think while there is this instinct, particularly on conservative talk television and talk radio, to say Biden bad, there really has been zero space between the Biden administration and Israel. That's why you have banners all over Israel right now thanking Joe Biden and the United States of America. So as I said, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Middle Unplugged. I appreciate you joining us today. Next week, I'm noodling with the idea of doing a conversation, kind of like what I did, a tour of the region, to talk about some of the recent efforts in the last 20 or so years since the Camp David Accords to try to find peace in the Middle East and where they went off the tracks, because that informs also this conversation who want to blame everything on Israel when so much of the peace process has been sidelined um, for, um, by the, because the Arabs didn't want to have peace. If you'd like to be part of the, of the program, you can reach out to me at wienerwabc at gmail.com, at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-A-N-A-R on X, uh, Twitter, although it has been a complete cesspool recently, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook and on Threads. And again, I appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to listen to the radio show, it's on every Saturday from 2 to 4. It's called The Middle. It has a podcast in a different feed, and I appreciate your support for that program as well. And I thank you very much for uh, tuning in today. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged.